0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago and joining you from California, where we're covering the West Coast Aerospace Forum, as well as the Reagan National Defense Forum. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress is racing to pass appropriations and an omnibus, working on the National Defense Authorization Act as Democrats elect New York Representative Hakeem Jeffries as minority leader, the first African-American to lead their party in Congress. While Democrats united behind Jeffries, the next Speaker of the House, California Republican Kevin McCarthy, faces a series of leadership challenges. Russia continues to pound Ukrainian infrastructure, plunging major cities into frigid darkness as Kiev receives additional aid from America and Europe, But pressure also mounts for Ukraine to negotiate an end to the war rather than press forward on its goal of retaking all the territories seized by Russia, including Crimea. President Biden is hosting a state visit for Emmanuel Macron, who becomes the first French president of the Fifth Republic to receive the honor twice he visited Washington at uh, former President Donald Trump's invitation in 2018. During this visit, the two leaders will discuss the war in Ukraine, European security, as well as France's role in the Pacific. Speaking of the Pacific. China is wracked by unprecedented protests across the nation as authorities crack down harshly on those voicing opposition not just to Beijing's stringent COVID lockdowns, but the increasingly repressive nature of the regime. This as U.S. and Australian officials convened for a defense ministerial as Washington, London, and Canberra work on the AUKUS agreement to improve defense cooperation among the three nations, including to equip Australia with nuclear-powered attack submarines. And as you listen to this program, the U.S. Air Force's new bomber, the B-21 Raider by Northrop Grumman, is being unveiled just before the annual Reagan National Defense Forum convenes at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library just north of Los Angeles. And a new poll that coincides with the annual Reagan Forum suggests public support for the U.S. military continues to decline. We'll discuss the poll and what it means. Joining us today, as they do each week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, and the co hosts of uh, the Must Listen to Brussels Sprouts podcast, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies, among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome. Great to have you back aboard. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan Forum are sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, who cleared the fog on naval and maritime matters, and The Downlink, with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, Terrific having the team all together again. Uh, Michael, as always, uh, lead us off, right? I mean, uh, an enormous amount of activity. Uh, I was going to make some duck joke, but we're in the lame duck session. Uh, and it's a bit of a broken record because uh, we keep talking about the same questions. But then again, it's a new week and new opportunities for the ball to move forward. Walk us through on appropriations, omnibus, and the National Defense Authorization Act.
1: Well, you're right. There's a lot to unpack in, in the lame duck. And um, we're starting to wonder if they're going to get everything done that they wanted to get done. But there are things that need to get done like NDAA and like um, government funding. Uh, There are some things that are slowing it down. We did see uh, some action on the Respect for Marriage Act in the Senate. Now it comes back to the House. Unexpectedly, uh, there was this rail strike that's been threatened that could cripple the economy. So Congress had to take some time. The House voted uh, to impose a contract to try and stop the rail strike. But now the Senate has to take action on that as well. Um, But we have seen uh, some good progress on both NDAA uh, and omnibus appropriations. So we'll start with NDAA. you know, the House and Senate Armed Services Committee have really wrapped up the bill. Uh, it is ready to be filed uh, hopefully tomorrow uh, and hopefully floor action next week. Uh, it's really at the leadership level because they are gonna attach several things to the NDAA. Uh, we have mentioned previously things like WERDA, Coast Guard reauthorization, uh, intelligence reauthorization, possibly the Safe Banking Act. Uh, in the meantime, uh, 13 Republican senators asked uh, McConnell not to consider the NDAA unless they uh, get a vote on an amendment. Uh, to end the COVID 19 vaccine mandate. And several members of the Armed Services Committee signed that letter, including Rick Scott uh, from Florida, Tommy Tupperville from Alabama, and Josh Hawley uh, from Missouri. Um, but the House is going forward and they hope to have the bill on the floor uh, as early as next Tuesday. Now, as far as the omnibus, at the beginning of the week, we were really going nowhere. And uh, in a rare uh, public statement to, to Capitol Hill, um, S- Secretary Lloyd Austin sent a letter to Pelosi, Schumer, Leahy, DeLauro, McConnell, McCarthy, Shelby, and Granger, pressing them to get this done uh, and laid out uh, in some detail the terrible things that happened to the US military, especially our ability to counter China will really be stymied the longer they wait to get this done. And it's actually costing the department $3 billion more per month than the administration thought in a budget request that the Republicans thought didn't keep pace with inflation anyway. So uh, I think that, that letter resonated. Uh, the president summoned uh, the congressional leaders over the White House for a meeting to talk about this, to try and get it done. And uh, now, finally, uh, they are trading proposals, the Republicans and Democrats. Uh, McConnell has actually come out saying he wants an Omni. Uh, privately, McCarthy is saying he wants one. Uh, Pelosi uh, has made this a priority, although she did, you know, float the specter of a year-long CR. But I think that uh, in the end is more posturing. I don't think we're going to face a lot of fights over the defense number in the in the omnibus. You know, it's obviously going to be much higher um, than the president's uh, budget request. I think it, it'll be at least 45 billion is my guess, probably higher. But the problem still is the non-defense domestic discretionary. Republicans say that you know, the Democrats passed a lot of these party line bills addressing climate tax, healthcare, COVID aid, things like that. And they uh, need to cut what's in the non-defense domestic discretionary in the omnibus. But they're still projecting an nominee approaching $1.7 trillion, especially when you add in the Ukraine aid and also the money for emergency relief for the for the hurricanes, and other national disasters.
0: I, I think it's uh, hilarious that uh, Republicans are running against measures that they ran on to get elected uh, and take the House. So uh, I, I find uh, that kind of uh, political honesty very welcome uh, here in Washington, uh, D.C., uh, ultimately. um I, th- I thought I would get a laugh out of that, but, but obviously <laughs> I didn't. Uh, sp- speaking about a laughing matter, talk to us about the debt ceiling uh, negotiations and, and what's new, right? I mean, there is this sense that this is the time to do it. Uh, otherwise we are going to be in uh, a lot of trouble. Uh, we've talked on this program about how we could end up with a budget control act situation again. Um, and Dove, wanna uh, get your sense uh, on all of this in a minute as, as well. But I mean, where are we on the debt ceiling discussion? Unfortunately, I'm not as optimistic as I was about the debt ceiling
1: last week. Uh, When the president convened the congressional leaders at the White House uh, to discuss issues related to lame duck, the debt ceiling did not come up in discussion. And Pelosi still is saying she wants to get it done, but government funding is her priority. And she's saying that the debt limit needs to be bipartisan, which means you can't use one of the reconciliation vehicles. And getting it done on a bipartisan basis is going to be uh, very difficult. Uh, And there's really no sense of urgency overall, because we won't hit the debt ceiling probably until the third quarter of next year. The urgency really is for the Democrats to get it done. So they're not held hostage for serious spending cuts next year, as the Republicans you know possibly could threaten to crash the economy over the debt ceiling. So I'm not as optimistic. It's not dead yet, but the clock
0: is running and we're running out of time to get it done. Um, uh, walk us through really quickly uh, on leadership. I mean, obviously, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, the party did unite behind him. He ran unopposed. Uh, There were actually three candidates, right? Uh, Clyburn, uh, as we discussed before we got started, is an octogenarian who does maintain the leadership role uh, in in the caucus. But obviously, Hakeem Jeffries now is a historic figure as the first African American to lead uh, their party in a, a body of Congress. And we congratulate him for that. Kevin McCarthy is going to be the next speaker uh, of the House, but has also a very fractious caucus, as we've discussed. What do we know uh, this week that we didn't know last week, Michael?
1: So the, the Democrats did complete their leadership elections and showed you know, tremendous unity for the more senior positions. Hakeem Jeffries who's the new leader who you pointed out was unopposed. Catherine Clark, who's the new whip, was unopposed. And Pete Aguilar, uh, who's the new caucus chair, also ran unopposed. Jim Clyburn, as you mentioned, the only octogenarian to stick around, is going to stay as assistant Democratic leader. Uh, but a challenge came up to him uh, the day before out of the blue from David Cicilline uh, from Rhode Island because he was arguing that there was no LGBTQ uh, representation in the leadership team, which is extremely diverse. Uh, he did pull out at the last minute and Clyburn was you know, was elected to that position unanimously. Uh, so, you know, the, the Democrats are showing a lot of unity. Um, you know, the Republicans, again, we went through their leadership races. The one that was most hotly contested was their whip race. But. You know McCarthy is you know speaker-designate. As I pointed out before, there are plenty of other speakers who did not get the requisite votes they needed uh, in the first vote. What counts is what happens on January 3rd. But there are six members of the Freedom Caucus who have publicly come out saying they will not vote for McCarthy. And if they don't, then he cannot get to 218 because they only have a five-seat majority. And on top of that, about a dozen of the Freedom Caucus folks met privately behind closed doors with the House parliamentarian earlier this week to review the rules and procedures governing the January 3rd speaker vote. Uh, so that spells trouble for McCarthy, but he does have a lot of time. And uh, I think we're all hopeful that he can figure out how to get there uh, with these guys because you know, they're not proposing an alternative. Uh, they're not saying they want somebody else for speaker. They're just uh, trying to make the road difficult for McCarthy, and McCarthy still has a lot of time to try and sort that out.
0: Michael, thanks very much for joining us, and I know you've got a jump, so really appreciate it, and look forward to seeing you at Reagan. Sounds great. Thanks, Dove. I just want to go to you uh, as uh, as one of our uh, seasoned political minds, right? I mean, what strikes you interesting in any uh, of what Michael said, and what you'd add to it?
2: Well, uh, obviously. Uh, the first thing, I guess, being a former comptroller and worrying about money, it is interesting that the Republicans have absolutely no incentive to deal with the debt ceiling now, and uh, I don't think they will. Uh, why should they? Why should they make the Democrats look good? Uh, you're going to have McCarthy coming in. He's going to have, a, as we said, as Michael said, a, a very fractious caucus. Uh, with uh, a a large number in the Freedom Caucus having far more influence over what McCarthy can do than, say, the squad and their fellow travelers could have over uh, Hakeem Jeffries, who's frankly a mainstream Democrat. Uh, So there's really no incentive for McCarthy to do this. Uh, And so I don't think he will. So that was one thing that I, I think jumps out at me. The other, quite honestly, is everybody's talking about the fact that there's lots of diversity at the democratic leadership, but the fact is there isn't a white person there except uh, a lady. There's no white man. And so that I think allows the Republicans to make their case to white males and not merely, uh, you know, uh, non high school graduate white males, which in any event is a myth. It isn't just uh, the people who don't graduate high school who vote Republican. So uh, I don't know how the Democrats deal with that. Um, I think it is praiseworthy that it's such a diverse leadership. But the fact is, it doesn't represent the entire face of the country unless you want to eliminate white males.
0: It is it is an issue uh, and one that's uh, come up when uh, you do talk to uh, Republican leaders uh, as well, right, that it's very important to have a diverse face to the party. But let's not forget. Right. The the, you know, the majority of the nation is, you know, white or Latino uh, as an increasing minority. And and how do you appeal to groups that Republicans have been uh, steadily more uh, effective uh, at appealing uh, to even even if, uh, you know, the electoral outcome uh, was uh, a little bit different.
2: Republicans aren't so great at all when it comes to diversity if you look at their leadership so you know you got a problem in both parties for different uh, reasons
0: uh, for 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 different reasons exactly jim i want to uh, bring you uh, into the discussion uh, on uh, ukraine uh, in particular uh, the administration on the one hand maintains that it will support ukraine for as long as it takes in this war dove and i were at uh, the halifax forum where we heard live uh, defense secretary austin's very powerful speech uh, about the obligation the United States and the world has to help uh, Ukraine. But there's increasing hints that the administration, as well as our uh, allies, are putting some pressure on Ukraine to end the fighting uh, ultimately and negotiate a settlement. And, and as we, uh, you know, the day before we recorded this, President Biden said uh, that uh, he would be open to talking to Vladimir Putin uh, about resolving uh, this uh, conflict are we talking out of both sides of our mouths? Where do we stand? And and how is this evolving? And more broadly, what are the implications of this? Because it does appear for anybody, we're sort of letting, you know, giving the Russians an opportunity to get off the hook, which is what bugs the living daylights out of Ukrainians. And anybody who believes that in this conflict, Ukraine has to win, and Russia has to demonstrably lose, not find a you know sort of an elegant way out for everybody and ultimately russia doesn't get punished
3: well i mean you've really stated very well what the you know uh, what the debate is uh on both sides of the atlantic but i think i think there's a sequencing issue here and i think uh there is a uh issue here about what is what we've been seeing over the past couple of months and then what we saw today uh with the macron visit particularly and, and what i mean by that is Just starting with with today, I really saw with the press conference and again at the press conference, uh, Biden talked about being being willing to talk to Putin if he wants to sit down and uh, say, look, I want to. Jim, Jim,
0: Jim, go back and just say yesterday because we're recording this today. It's playing tomorrow. So just say yesterday when you uh, (laughs) do the time reference, okay? Sorry about that. Yes, Not right. at all. No, no, no. I just want to make sure that the audience is like, wait a minute. So we're trying to trick them into thinking that we're doing this tomorrow. Yes, yeah.
3: yes, 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 yes.
0: Okay. Okay. Very good. Uh, uh, three, three, two, one, go.
3: So let's look at just what happened today. Uh, here we go again. So let's look at what happened yesterday uh, at the press conference that uh, Macron and the uh, Biden had, uh, and also at the the speeches that they made at the arrival ceremony yesterday at the White House. You know, Biden mentioned again that he would be willing to sit down with Putin should Putin come around and say, "Okay, I'm looking for a way out. Help me with this. Uh, But it was obvious from what he's what Biden said in his body language, he wasn't expecting a call like that from Putin anytime soon. Uh, And I think he was one of these things where you say, yeah, I'll talk to the guy. Uh, but without any expectation that that's any time, you know, imminently. So I I really think what we're talking about here is eventually with this war, there's going to have to be something, someone is going to have to sit around a table and sort out the way ahead to to end this. Uh, But they're not going to do it until the fighting has gotten to a point where there's one side or the other is totally exhausted uh, or totally defeated. And we are a long way from that. So I think in terms of sequencing, um, the talk about, okay, you got to be open to negotiating, you got to be open to talking. Uh, that's something at some point in the distant future. Right now, I don't think anyone is twisting arms saying we not, we have to negotiate now, we got to find peace now. Uh, I think right now, the full emphasis is we've got to keep the assistance going uh, to Ukraine. We've got to include generators now to help them through this, Winter and and all kinds of equipment to help them repair electrical facilities, but we got to give them more ammo. They're burning through it. We need to get them attack them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm really picking up, and I did at the, at the, with Macron and with Biden. And I was, I had to testify two weeks ago in front of the, uh, the HVAC, uh, and they were Republican and Democrat all over me about needing to do more, uh, for Ukraine. So I really, I I know there's been some squeaks and squawks over the past month or so about Jake Sullivan or someone else, uh, what what General Milley had to say about negotiations, but I really don't think this is anything, uh, there's anything there in terms of twisting arms behind the scenes right now or wanting to make peace. I think everyone is really unified and trying to help both Europe as well as Ukraine get through the winter, uh, make sure the ammo is there, and uh, make sure that we're going to have progress on the field of battle
0: i don't think there's a push to, to negotiate um dove uh let me bring you in because i know uh, you've got your hand up uh for a comment and, and then jim i want to come back uh to some of the working elements and what the expectations and takeaways are uh from uh this important meeting with america's oldest ally but go ahead dove
2: well a couple of uh, comments
0: first uh yeah we're we're
2: supplying and the europeans are supplying the ukrainians however uh road a couple of weeks ago, we're not providing the tanks they want. Uh, And uh, as I will appear today at 10 o'clock, I guess appear today, uh, the Germans haven't sent over martyrs or leopards. They're trying to do it through other, you know, this this kind of exchange where they sell this stuff to Eastern European NATO allies who then sell Russian stuff with the excuse that it takes too long to train, which, uh, frankly, just about everybody I've spoken to says is a phony excuse. Uh, on the on the issue of, of cutting a deal, the, the, the administration's got a problem, which is they cut a deal. Be, uh, actually, it was the previous administration cut a deal behind uh, Ashraf Ghani's back. It's going to be very difficult to do something like that, particularly with a media savvy guy like Zelensky. If anything like that is tried, he's going to go straight to the public, you and I were in Halifax, we saw how they, you know, the Ukrainians talked to us from Kiev on Zoom, Uh, it'll go nowhere, he'll just blow it out of the water. So I totally agree with Jim, but also for this reason as well.
3: And I agree with Dove about the martyrs and the leopards and this type of thing. That is crap right now uh, in Berlin and other places about getting this equipment there. We have got to hurry and get it in there right now. Um, as uh, winter sets in. We got to get this stuff moving.
0: Um, look, I think uh, the uh, British move, the British have opened the door. And I believe that the sending of Sea King uh, search and rescue helicopters to the Ukrainians opens the door for the West to send aircraft, just like uh, the Brits were first with Starstreak. Then we follow an Enlaw. law We followed then with Stinger and Javelin. They were first to, I mean, obviously, they weren't going to send GMLRS there without our blessing, uh, ultimately. And then it opened the door for us to be able to send that. We said we wouldn't send air defense, but then we sent NASAMS. I think that it's vitally important for us to get Patriot and all of these other capabilities into the country and not sort of uh you know dance around this ultimately uh right. and increasingly uh you know putin is warning about the dire nature nature of the implications for the russian economy because he can't hide it anymore so you know when when you know don't don't rescue your enemy uh when things are going badly for them uh by you know you know, short sightedly thinking like, well, you know, we get to resolve this problem, uh, uh, you know, in a a quicker fashion. Jim, I want to ask you about uh, the Macron Biden visit and what we hope uh, is going to be coming out of this. Obviously, uh, you know, where you spend your time suggests your priorities. Uh, This is the second time Macron uh, has visited a White House, Uh, obviously in the wake of Brexit. France becomes more important as a strategic power, a global power, uh, EU's leading military and nuclear power, um, you know, and, and it's a Pacific power uh, as well uh, that was very irked because of the AUKUS deal. We're going to hear from Patrick in a minute about the Osman, the Australian-US uh, talks. What are your expectations of the key takeaways of this first, uh, of Biden's first state visit and meeting with Macron?
3: Well, it's uh, you know it's interesting. I uh, I have to say this this first visit uh, because of COVID, you know, there was a lot of pent up uh, interest in the White House uh, to have something uh, back like old school uh, state visits, uh, pomp and circumstance, and state dinners, and a lot of good publicity and good speeches. And the French were the just the perfect country for that. Uh, and uh, the the arrival ceremony that was yesterday. Uh, I attended that, uh, and I have to say, it was definitely something uh, that was made good headlines, good visuals on TV. Uh, it was a it was very good uh, air of, uh, of um, warmth, you know, um, among each other, among both countries and both leaders, so it was quite the event. Uh, but, you know, when, they, when the doors closed and, they, and the lobster was taken away uh, and they got down to business... I think I think the media, particularly that has been focused on the IRA, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act problem that Europe has and that France is carrying the ball on, which is uh, that the, that's not a level playing field when it comes to um, you know high tech dealing with electric vehicles and batteries and all those kinds of things. Uh, there's a uh, there's an issue about the U.S. incentives uh, and so. That was that was the big big headline for a lot of uh, of the media. Where is this going to go uh, after this visit? And what was interesting is the press conference that both leaders had yesterday. Um, you had uh, Biden uh, being very conciliatory and talking about needing to tweak the language somewhat in the legislation and uh, and making a lot of noises that the teams that were meeting right now were going to actually make headway and come up with something that might seem to be a bit more fair uh, to European industry, uh, and less by America. And so I think that's what the media will focus on. But the second thing though, Vago is, uh, it's really key for France and, uh, the U S to stay tight on Ukraine. Uh, you know, um, uh, Putin gets phone calls from Macron, uh, and, uh, they talk. Uh, and so, uh, that's the communication line that's open now between the West, uh, And Moscow is really what uh, Macron is saying. And I think we have to make sure that that French message uh, is in line with the West and in line with the U.S. and with Ukraine. Uh, And uh, not that I think um, that Macron is is deviating from the line, but I think it's important to check signals. Uh, I think it's important to get a read from Macron what he's hearing out of Putin. Uh, and where he thinks Putin might be going, so Ukraine and the unity about Ukraine uh, is important, and that was all over that press conference yesterday, as well as the arrival in the, to the White House. Uh, you could tell looking at Biden how struck he was about the brutality of some of these strikes that, that you know that he mentioned uh, the uh, nursery that was hit and that two-year-old kid that was killed in the strike and the tragedy of that. So. You know, this unity certainly was there, uh, and I think that was an important signal to come out of this visit. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so those are two things, I think, that uh, on a long list of, of, um, of issues they're going to be dealing with, space, uh, I mean, there's all kinds
0: of things. Those are the two big ones to me. Um, I, I uh, should also point out that the president uh, noted that he was appreciative that Macron did have a dialogue with Putin and that there was a way to communicate uh, and and they had at least, uh, you know, had a channel uh, of communication with the Russian leader. Patrick, you've been extraordinarily patient, uh, waiting for us to, to clear out this uh, underbrush before we get to a very important part of the world. Um uh, I want to get to the demonstrations in China, the unprecedented demonstrations in China in, in a moment. Uh, but, um, the, you know, the U.S. president is talking to Macron uh, while U.S. officials also meet with their Australian uh, counterparts. The White House had told uh, French officials after they were very upset a year ago when this deal was announced uh, that they would, you know, make them whole somehow. Uh, and there have been a lot of dialogue and, and um, a lot of discussion around those lines. Um, I'm one of the people who believes that satisfying and getting nuclear submarines to the Australians is important, and it's important for us to be creative, even if AUKUS should become, uh, you know, as Mija Oslin joined us uh, a week ago or so, uh, and, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, it's important to add maybe Japan to it, and indeed, maybe France. Maybe it's a Japanese submarine with a French nuclear reactor and an American combat system, for example, that could be uh, an easier and faster industrial-based way. Uh, maybe of, of doing this with lower enriched uranium and a more su- supportable uh, infrastructure, uh, ultimately. Come, to bring all of these elements together uh, and these narratives uh, as you know the AUKUS guys work to satisfy the requirement, what you thought was interesting in terms of uh, France's role in the Pacific, and then also the Osman uh, and what that means, because even the Australians and the Albanese government is looking to patch up and improve relations uh, that were were damaged by its predecessor because of the AUKUS deal.
4: Well, Vago, the uh, AUKUS announcement of, over a year ago was uh, thought to be a, a technological uh, sort of prize that, at the end of it, you build these nuclear-powered submarines and and, and convert Australia into a high-tech uh, sort of S and and nuclear power zone, um, at least nuclear propulsion power. And and yet that's a long-term vision. But as we know, the long term's got to run through the short and medium term. Um, and it was Disraeli who said that, uh, you know, uh, finality is not uh, the language of politics. Well, so never say never on exactly what kind of deal might be announced in the spring of 2023. And your suggestion that the Japanese uh, submarine um, and a nuclear reactor from France could be part of a, a, a sort of an interim deal or, uh, you know, maybe the decision that that really uh, solidifies security in the Pacific for Australia and its allies. It It turns AUKUS from a knife in the back of France to giving them a seat at the high table. Yes, Japan becomes part of this in a big way. Um, And so this really could uh, square the circle, as you suggested.
0: What are the top issues uh, in the Osman uh, dialogue uh, that jumps out at you and you think is most important?
4: Well, the the 6th December meeting of the two plus two of the Foreign and Defense Minister of Australia and and, uh, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, are going to cover exactly those portfolios of both the political side, so regional diplomacy and development, but also the defense side, the the technology side, the submarines, the nuclear stewardship, um, dealing with the the cybersecurity and other technology, uh, including space. Um, And I think that's a huge agenda. And I think that's one of the challenges that these leaders face. There's so much uh, willingness on both Canberra and Washington to cooperate that the agenda is getting bigger. Um, but we have to move forward in meaningful ways uh, so that people can understand, both in Australia and the United States and in the region, that real uh, impact is coming as a result of this. The strategic effects that are desired are being achieved, not just the rhetoric, not just the meetings. Um, and there's a deadline. Next spring, they've announced, you know, that's the 18-month deadline where they were, you know, Canberra and Washington were going to make it clear that they had a roadmap for this high-tech, including submarine deal. Uh, So they have to start showing those things. So their time is very short. I think the the most critical thing out of next Tuesday's meeting is coming up with a decision on on which options are number one and two so that they can narrow this down and make some hard decisions in the coming weeks.
0: I I should uh, point out that um, many in the United States are hoping Uh, that there is an American solution and that there is the investment in the American industrial base uh, in order to be able to build more submarines and build them more quickly. And I think that that's a laudable goal. I'm not sure we're going to get there. And so my interest in this is, you know, if one of the important deterrent messages we could send is how quickly could we do something like this to satisfy, uh, obviously, um, an important, you know, if, if we set the goal and we actually achieve it, Uh, is great if we can do it, you know, sort of somewhat in our in our lifetime. Uh, Let me ask. uh,
4: I mean, just on this point, again, we have a long term vision for AUKUS, which is great. Um, We have a long term Indo-Pacific vision, which is great. But if we can't protect Taiwan in this decade, if we can't protect our influence and interests uh, in this decade, um, then those long term plans are for naught. And that's why uh, we have to balance uh, things like in your interview with Deputy Foreign Minister Tsai of Taiwan, you know, how do you give the enough stockpiles and enough asymmetric capabilities to Taiwan in the 2020s so that we, we can get safely to the 2030s and beyond?
0: Uh, very much uh, appreciate, Dr. Tsai, uh, spending some time with us. And, and that was the program that we had on yesterday. So thanks very much, Patrick, for uh, giving a shout out to that. Let me uh, bring France into this uh, for a second, right? I mean, the French um, are, are not necessarily balking, but are sort of balking at the language that we're using about China. Uh, they're saying that it is a systemic challenge. They don't want to refer to it as a threat. We refer to China as a threat. Um, is there anything that you read in that language? Because again, I mean, privately, the French uh, are um, alarmed that China's behavior, Right, participate in freedom of navigation operations, uh, are increasingly focused on the Pacific, but also are very cognizant that you know, I mean, the United States is really the leading strategic element in the Pacific. uh, And obviously, Japan has a bigger presence. I mean, you know, I mean, France's presence is important. It is a Pacific power, but it doesn't have that many assets that are forward in the region. But I'm talking more rhetorically. Is there anything? Is there daylight you see between America, France and Europe on this ultimately or not?
4: Well, the glass is still more than half full when you think about how far Alliances have come both transatlantic and transpacific toward um, solidifying uh, to stand up to the Chinese over aggression and, and coercive uh, economics and so on. But there are limits to that. And I think we're, we're seeing some of those limits, especially at this point, this inflection point right now in China's policy. I've, I've got a piece coming out next week about a wolf warrior in sheep's clothing. Uh, and it's very much that since the 20th Party Congress, China wants to take a softer line right now because they need breathing space at home. Uh, socially and economically um and so the the French and the Koreans and many other countries are not just concerned about our uh sort of uh, technology policies uh hurting their own economies they're hurting uh possibly trade with China they're, they're they want to temper America's enthusiasm even while we they agree with the concern about China so yes you're going to get into more semantics. it's more than semantics but at the same time you still have to appreciate the fact that Uh, transatlantic, transpacific alliances right now are stronger than they've been uh, since the end of the uh, Cold War.
0: Um, Let me ask you about the unprecedented demonstrations we've seen uh, across China. Uh, They started at a Foxconn plant in uh, Zhengzhou. Uh, They've now spread uh, across the country. Uh, It started with COVID lockdowns uh, and it has expanded to repression and surveillance and a variety of uh, themes. Uh, The regime has responded uh, as uh, brutally, as you would expect it to uh, respond, uh, and using all the tools of the surveillance uh, state. Um, can't, you know? But these, once these kind of things break out, it's very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube in a permanent way. Um, the more the crackdown goes the opposite direction, go the people. Right? What's your sense? How how deep is this? What does it signify and how do Washington and the West have to respond now? And is there any way is there any way they can help without becoming part of the problem rather than the solution? And if so, how?
4: Yeah. And that last question is a very difficult one. I mean, already the Chinese are suggesting that there's foreign influence here when it's obvious to everybody, including all Chinese, that this is a grassroots movement. Um, and it, it is this national grassroots movement that I think is what characterizes this current protest and separates it from all the other protests that we seldom cover or seldom read about uh, in the Western press, but have happened throughout uh, the decades. Um, going back to But to Tiananmen is now the comparison for the current protest because it is the biggest threat to the uh, Chinese Communist Party and to Xi Jinping now, uh, as he has all the authority, um, that we've seen in the post-Mao world. Um, and that's uh, that's something that's why this is such a pivotal time. And yet I don't want to overstate it because the Chinese have all of the law enforcement abilities to crack down on these and they haven't really used that overt force. They've used arrests. Yes, they're using the surveillance state uh, at, at sort of uh, at, at sort of in uh, confiscating phones and deleting uh, telegram and WhatsApp and, um, you know, WeChat kind of linkages. But at the same time, they are playing it softly and so much so that the point person, the key official here uh, for COVID in China has just dropped the word dynamic when referring to dynamic zero COVID. And it's that dynamic zero COVID that's justified these draconian lockdowns for months at time. I mean, if you're in Wuhan and you've been locked down for 100 days you are supremely frustrated as the World Cup comes on and you see everybody gathered in stadiums. Um, when you, and, and you think about the Chinese talking about the scientific basis for this, but it's the scientific basis for it is that the RNA vaccines, which are readily available from the West, could vaccinate the elderly in China, the 60 and above, and could allow China to uh, loosen up. Um, so even though China's loosening up in some small ways right now by making people allow to not go to quarantine centers, but maybe quarantine at home, maybe forego some of the PCR tests that are being conducted en masse to millions of people in big cities. Um, you know, those are small measures right now to relieve pressure, but they're short term. They do not have a long term in game here right now because they're trying to mass produce their own RNA vaccine. That's still going to take months. Um, they Take more months to get people vaccinated. That seems to be the current policy choice right now of the CCP. Uh, in Xi Jinping, so they've got some very a very tricky winter to get through here, um, and they're they really don't know how to proceed.
0: And Patrick, before we move on, uh, you know one of the important reports that comes out of the Pentagon is a little bit like the old Soviet military power, sort of Chinese military power. Uh, give us a sense on what this year's report has to say uh, about our friends in Beijing.
4: Well, a lot of people have focused on the fact that they're talking about a fifteen hundred nuclear uh, weapon stockpile by the middle of the 2030s And that's certainly news because it's continuation of earlier DOD estimates that the Chinese are now moving away from a minimal nuclear deterrent to one that has more parity with the United States. Um, And I think that's deservedly getting attention. But what's lost if you don't read the rest of the report, and it's an excellent media report that builds on previous reports but goes beyond it, is really the comprehensive systemic approach that not just uh, the PLA, all all instruments of power, but especially the military – in China is comprehensively preparing for operations like uh, seizing Taiwan, um, and the nuclear part of it is simply to, to you know, further deter the United States from intervening on behalf of Taiwan. And 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 you, if you read the entire report, look at all domains, look at the gray zone, look at their conventional capabilities, look at space and cyber. Um, it's a it's a very sobering um, reminder that the PLA is modernizing on a aggressive basis and they're spending a lot of money and forget forget the budgets overall in terms of what we spend versus what they spend they're getting a lot for their money um, and this report details it enumerates it and makes it very clear uh, where the PLA is heading now they've got social political problems and other issues so I don't want to make them to be 10 feet tall but this report must be read uh, when you think about the system versus system warfare strategy that the Chinese want to, to want to wage.
0: Uh, And and just one uh, additional clarification, do you expect these protests to get worse or do you expect them to be able to stanch the protests?
4: Nobody can see this feature. Uh, What we can see is that Beijing is already giving in to some extent by relaxing some of the draconian measures. They can't relax them too far, as I said, because if they do, they open it up to mass casualties because the over 60 are just not vaccinated. They're not up to date with vaccinations and they haven't had the RNA vaccinations that are important. Maybe they can weather this Omicron uh, variant, but they're really afraid about what comes next. They're not prepared for it. So watch this space. Um, China is is sort of riding a tiger here. They're the only big country that hasn't opened up and they're not ready for it yet.
0: Dov, uh, I want to uh, bring you uh, into the discussion because obviously uh, we're in California for the Reagan Forum. Uh, you and I were in Halifax together where uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, again, gave an extraordinary uh, address. He's going to be addressing um, the forum uh, as well. And your son, Roger Zackheim uh, is the director uh, of uh, the Reagan Institute, uh, who is, uh, which is such an important part of this. And he's actually one of uh, the brains behind this uh, operation. What do you expect to hear uh, over, uh, the weekend. Uh, and, and talk to us a little bit about the poll, uh, right. Every year the Reagan Institute puts a very thoughtful poll out on, uh, security trends and American people's sentiment. Uh, and one of them is declining confidence, uh, in the U S military, bring this all together and what we're going to be hearing over the weekend. Do you think?
2: Well, that's already been, uh, all over the press, this issue of the declining, uh, confidence in the military. I mean, it, it's falling like a rock. It's down to below 50 percent. And that has some serious implications for recruiting in particular. Uh, it, you know, the the economy uh, right now is having trouble finding people, but the military is having just as much trouble, it seems, uh, not meeting quotas and so on. Uh, and the issue really comes down to the politicization of the military. The Republicans, of course, say that it's the uh, wokeness, the priority given to diversity and and everything else that goes with it that's the problem. The Democrats say it's the the Trump legacy of, of talking about my military and what happened with General Milley of Lafayette Square and so on. The real point is not who's wrong. The real point is what do you do about it? And it seems to me... You know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of culprits here. For example, um, the retired generals should simply not address political conventions, full stop. Uh, the media gives far too much prominence to retired, not just generals, but colonels and God knows what else. Uh, and so in a way, because the media itself tends to be tilted in one direction or the other politically, You get these military people who are tilted to one direction or another, and that's not good. And so if you're a young 18-year-old and you're seeing this and you can get paid better somewhere else and everybody's talking about how the military is politicized, you're going to say, I don't want it. I don't need it. And that's a disaster. I mean, you don't join the military or, frankly, work for the Defense Department in any capacity uh, because you're trying to to get rich. That's not what it's about. And so if you already know that you're supposed to join for other reasons and then you discover that in fact the public no longer has the same confidence in you that there's criticism that all of a sudden the military is so highly politicized for whatever reason right um, drives people it drives young people away and that's what we're beginning to see and it's very very troubling so that's going to be a point. There's another one that'll be discussed, I think, and that's this new office of of strategic capital that uh, Secretary Austin announced. Uh, And the idea there is is to provide innovative ways to get money to industry, uh, smaller industries, obviously smaller companies to develop cutting edge technology. It's not exactly like the, 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 the DIU, the defense innovation unit, because they're going to look at other kinds of uh, funding, loans, and loan guarantees. The question, of course, uh, is, okay, uh, what's going to happen to military spec? Uh, you know, you constantly have these specifications that no matter what comes out uh, at the front end, by the time it gets to the back end, it's taken forever anyway. Uh, This is supposed to avoid the valley of death. I don't exactly see how it's going to do that. That's not been spelled out yet entirely. And then the question is, how does the defense bureaucracy, which frankly is not particularly innovative, to put it mildly, going to react to this? Because this really involves creative financing. Are you going to give it to somebody talented like Mike McCord, the comptroller, who might be able to do something good with it? But then again, he needs a staff that understands how this works. So, a lot of question marks there. I think the intention is good. Uh, I think it's important that they recognize they've got to beat this valley of death problem.
0: How they implement, it's always the implementation that's the issue. <clears throat> uh, as, as they say, right? The devil uh, is always in the details. You know, I was going to say uh, when you were talking about confidence in the military, um, I mean, we. As reporters reflect, what the broader debate is, uh, and so if people are trying to politicize it, whether it's on one side uh, saying, "Well, you know, they don't care about war fighting anymore, and it's all about wokeness," or another side saying, "Well, you know, it's just a hotbed of extremists that are over there," um, is then plays into the and then right. You if you do have military members who seem like they're taking one side or another. I understand how very many uh, uh, military officers have said, and you and I, Dove, know a lot of these same people, we were compelled to sign a letter because we were worried about the existential danger. It's one thing, if political appointees are signing those letters, it's a very different thing when military people do it, which is why some retired senior military people didn't want to sign either letter because they're like, look, we're, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be playing in politics. We salute crisply and we support the commander-in-chief no matter who they are ultimately uh, Look, at, at the, at the let end me, of the day.
2: Let me point out that the model for how to do this right is Mike Mullen, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, former CNO. He's he's supportive of, of one particular party. He's, he's not quiet about it, but he doesn't get into any of this stuff. He's not on television as some kind of expert. He doesn't speak at conventions. He doesn't give these kinds of interviews, and he strongly believes that the military has to stay out of politics
0: if only others followed his lead. Uh, in indeed, uh, we've got uh, a minute or so left. Dove, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, and what's going on in Iran? Obviously, the United States uh, beat Iran in a very important soccer match. Uh, it was fascinating to see uh, Iranian soccer players seeming to side uh, with uh, the protesters. Uh, so uh, it's interesting. Uh, going to be interesting to see how they're punished uh, for that. Uh, given how brutally, uh, you know, we talked to Jason Resign when we were in Halifax, uh, and, you know, discussed the the brutal nature of the regime that I think people have a tendency uh, of missing. Fortunately, uh, it looks like the Iran nuclear deal is, you know, even America's closest allies are telling it, there's, there's no there there. And the administration appears to have reconci- recognized that. Uh, talk to us both on the BB side, give us a quick Israel and a quick Iran update.
2: Well, uh, on the BB side, he now seems to have taken on an even more extreme guy than the the two that we've talked about for some time, Ben-Gvir and Smotrich. And this fella, he basically would uh, certainly wants to kick the Arabs out. That that goes without saying for people like this. But beyond that, he wants to create a Talmudic state. Now, and and know, I think
0: and, and clarify that for the audience. The, the Arabs it, it he's means, talking about kicking out are Israeli oh, Arab yes. they,
2: citizens. These, these, are, these are Israeli Arab citizens. And and what he means by a Talmudic state is essentially doing what the Iranian mullahs do, which is to say everybody's got to conform to one particular view of how Judaism should be practiced. And by the way, uh, he's he may be ultra-Orthodox, but there isn't even uniformity among the ultra-Orthodox as to how you... You know, practice Judaism. It's just like all the other religions of the world. There is no uniformity, but you get these people, and he is now coming into Netanyahu's coalition. And Netanyahu has said, "Don't worry, I'm not going to allow this to happen." Blah blah blah. Who knows? the The problem is that without these extremists, Netanyahu falls, and if he, his government falls, he could go to jail. So he's so it's not at all clear that they're not going to get at least a lot of what they want. And, you know, and the parallels with Iran are, are you know, yeah, nobody's going to start shooting Israelis the way the Iranians are shooting women and students and workers and just and, and particularly what has to be noted is that they're going after minorities. They're going after the Baluchs. They're going after the Azeris. They're going after the Kurds. The lady who was killed, of course, the 22-year-old was a Kurd and still the Revolutionary Guard is not involved, fully involved yet. And when they become involved, there's going to be a lot more bloodshed. Uh, I've said this before, I think even on this program, I think what we're looking at is not 1917 Russia. We're looking at 1905 Russia. They, they lost the Russo-Japanese War. There was an uprising. The Czar put it down, but there was no way to keep it down forever. And I think that's what we're seeing here, that, Somewhere down the line, 8, 10, 12 years down the line, this, these mullahs are going to go, and maybe they'll surprise us and go even sooner.
0: Uh, and I want to point out, I think for a lot of people would be stunned uh, to see Israel turn into a theocracy, uh, given the richness of uh, religious worship uh, across the country of all uh, faiths. And I should point out to our audience, we're hearing this from a 26th generation Orthodox rabbi, right? So um, I, I, I hope people heed uh, what you're saying as a man of the cloth. Um, that's, to our hardly, that's
2: hardly why I'm, why I'm on this program, however.
0: It it is, yes, but I I think it gives you a little bit of a moral compass, is uh, what I'm trying to say, Dove. Ultimately, Um, guys, thank you very much. It's an honor and pleasure always having you on the program. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, And I want to make a quick program note uh, for our audience. At the time that we taped this, the B21 has not yet been rolled out, uh, so we're going to discuss that on Sunday's show, along with uh, if. Uh, the decision comes out, as has been rumored, uh, that the United States Army is going to pick a winner in the future long-range assault aircraft uh, competition in which uh, a team with Sikorsky and Boeing are competing uh, against Bell uh, for this contract uh, for a long-range assault aircraft uh, that would replace at least a portion of uh, the Black Hawk fleet with something uh, faster faster and longer ranged. Guys, thanks very much again. Really appreciate it. Dove looking forward uh, to seeing Dove and Michael look forward to seeing you here at the conference uh, and Jim and Patrick, thanks so very very much uh, for joining us and looking forward to having a robust after action uh, after uh, this great conference. Thanks so very much.